0: So last week, just a little summary if you weren't with us, uh, Scott said, it is natural to pray for things that you care for and are passionate about. He said last week that our prayer lives reveal what we're truly passionate about. The question is, does our hearts, do our hearts line up with what God is passionate about? What he cares about. Prayer was last week. Well, in the same way, with that as a summary of last week, you could say the same thing about the act of caring as we consider mission three through three, prayer, care, and share. So what we want to do is, as we're thinking about last week with prayer and this week with care, what is God passionate about? What does he desire? What motivates him? So the question we should be asking today in this message is, what does God care about And why does he care? How does he show that he cares? As a follower of Christ, as many of you are, who love God, this is the question, the question that we'll be asking and answering today. This also forms the basis of why we care about others and how to share or how to show we care and how to care for them. So by care, before we get started, by care, I want to say what, what I mean by care. It means two things. Uh, by care, it means the motive of caring. Wow, this is getting kind of, hold on just a second before I like trip over myself. It's the motive of caring. So what I mean by care. And if you look at the title of the message today, it is, why do we care? I'm talking about the motive of caring what motivates us to care? And then the action of caring. So when I, when I talk about care today, I'm talking about motive that leads to action. The motive that leads to action. So what motivates us to care? And what does caring actually look like as we go into the summer of Mission 333? Well, it is the why, motive, Right? why you do certain things, that's motive, that leads to the what, which is action. So what drives you, what motivates you to care for others? Why do we care leads to how we care. What caring for others actually means and what it looks like. So, coming back full circle to what I was saying a moment ago, the most important question that we can ask today is, what motivates God to care? Leading Him to act on our behalf. So, even with God, there's a motive to His caring that leads to action. So, this is what we're asking today, because we take our cues, not from one another necessarily, but we take our cues from God. What drives him? What motivates him to care for us, to act on our behalf? That's the question. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the narrative of Lazarus. And it was very important to read all 53 verses so that you could get the context. And we're going to be taking snapshots. We're not going to go, and you're probably going, praise the Lord. We're not going to go line by line by line by line, okay? Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to reread 53 verses either. So we're going to take some snapshots. Well, the narrative of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead gives us some clues to answering the question. Why do we care? Why does God care? What motivates him to care that causes him to act on our behalf? So today we'll look at the biblical whys and what's of caring from the passage uh, that was just read. Simply put, to understand and embrace what motivates Jesus to care and then to act in John chapter 11. On behalf of his friends, if you look at verse 11, he does call them basically his friends. Verse 11, chapter 11. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, these are his friends. So let's dig in. I mean, you know, there's so much we could say about this. It is 53 verses, um, and there is so much there that we could say. But we're just going to look again, once again, at just a few little snapshots uh, of that passage that show us Jesus cares and uh, how he acts upon that caring. Okay, so to refresh the story. Lazarus is ill, right? You learn that from basically verse 1, don't you? His sisters send word to Jesus and Jesus decisively declares this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. This is uh, chapter 11, verse 4. You know, this prepares us for something really big, right? He's saying this illness does not lead to death. It's, It's to magnify me, and so that, that raises our antennas a little bit. And as readers, we are primed for a, a miracle, aren't we? We are primed for a sign, for a public supernatural act that demonstrates who Jesus is, like, like turning the water into wine. Remember that miracle? That showed something of Jesus. Or feeding the 5,000 or healing a crippled man, or making a blind man see. Jesus is saying, all of this is for a reason, which is to glorify me, to magnify the Son of God. So the reader, we're left going, wow, this is going to be awesome. He's going to show something about himself like he has in the past. And they're thinking the same thing. But then confusion sets in. If you notice when the sisters send word and they say, Lord, he whom you love, Lazarus, he whom you love is ill. This is verse 3. They clearly expect him to come. But what does he do? Jesus delays. It says, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, you know, his friend, you know, the one whom he loves, he stays two days longer in the place where he was. He waits two more days after getting the news. This is confusing. When Jesus tells his disciples, he seems to speak in riddles. He says in verse 11, Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. If he's asleep, Jesus, he'll wake up. Jesus then says, no, Lazarus has died. Is Jesus talking about sleep or is he talking about death? Well, it gets confusing for the disciples. They're going, what's up, Jesus? All along, Jesus' emotional responses are very puzzling. To his disciples, he says, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. That's strange, isn't it? That's verses 14 through 15, really? Our friend has died and you're glad? Well, that's confusing. But when he arrives, he's he's troubled, and and he weeps, verses thirty three through thirty five. This is confusing. If he's if he's glad, then why is he weeping? If he's if he's weeping, why did he say he was glad? Do you see? That it gets very confusing. At the tomb, Jesus tells them to remove the stone. This is verses 38 through 39. But Lazarus has been dead for four days. He is not mostly dead, like in the movie The Princess Bride, if you ever seen it. He's not, he's not mostly dead. He is dead dead. I mean, like, soul has left the body and is gone, kind of dead. Body is decaying in the tomb, kind of dead. Why did it remove the stone now? It's just so very confusing, isn't it? And hanging over the entire story is one confusing thought. Both sisters give voice to it. Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's verse 21. Mary says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 32. You know, the repetition is very telling, isn't it? What have Mary and Martha been talking about for the last four days? What have they been saying to each other and over and over again in the face of this tragedy? If, you know, if only... He had been here. None of this would have happened. Finally, the mourners explicitly raise the question that haunts this whole story, this whole confusing story. Could not he, this is verse 37, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? That's a good question. And so while Jesus' words at the beginning prepares for something really big, glory, uh, you know, magnifying the Son of God, the miraculous, for signs that display the glory of Jesus, the people in the story are living in confusion now. This whole episode that we've read about, verses 1 through 53, just doesn't make sense to us it doesn't make sense unless here's the point unless you know the end of the story and unless you understand what is motivating Jesus to do the things that he's doing i would have hated to have been the people who are not in our shoes but who are living through the situation how difficult it would have been to see your brother being ill to the point of death. Jesus, this illness does not lead to death. Well, guess what? He died. So, one of the things we see from this passage, and this is point number one in your map. So one of the things that we see from this passage that motivated Jesus to care and therefore act on their behalf and on our behalf is that he loved them. And church, he loves you. <laughs> he loves us. He calls Lazarus a friend. What gets them through this confusing time, and this could be a whole other sermon, is that there's this truth that's also hanging over this entire situation. He loves us. He loves us. And he has the power to do something about this situation. Verse 11, once again, he says, Our friend Lazarus is asleep, but I go to awaken him. But this was not just a mere acquaintance kind of friendship. Jesus knew them and loved them. He had spent time with them. We see that in the very first part of the chapter. They knew him, and they knew what he was capable of. Verse 3 says this, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, And Lazarus, verses 35 through 36, Jesus wept. And because Jesus wept, the Jews said, see how he loved him. Church, Jesus, wow, this is what gets me up in the morning. Jesus loves you and he loves me You know, these are words simple enough for a child to understand. Jesus loves me, this I know. Yes. Words that according to Paul surpass all human knowledge. This is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19. So unfathomable is the love of Jesus that we even, this is what the Bible says, that we even need spirit-wrought strength to comprehend its length, its width, its height, and its depth. We just, we're just on the tip of the iceberg when we say, Jesus loves me. That's one reason the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11 is so helpful. In one story, we see both the simplicity of the love of Jesus and how incomprehensible it is. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse five, he loved them and he loves us and he loves you. Let me see your eyes just for a moment. He loves you. Even when things seem confusing. Even when you can't see, there's an old song, even when you can't see his hand, you trust his heart. He loves you. And this story shows just how surprising and once again unfathomable that love can be. Jesus loves us. So why are we talking about this when it comes to caring? Well, why is this important and foundational as we start talking about what we do to care for others and how we care for them? Well, church, it's like this. Just as Jesus' love motivated him to care for them, it is his love for us that motivates him to care for us. And as we receive his love and care on a daily basis, that overflow of his love and care for us spills over into the lives of others. We start with his love for us. In caring for others. We, here's what the Bible says, church. We love him because he first loved us. And we love others because he first loved us. How do we know he loves us from this passage? Where is the gospel in this passage? Well, look at verses 7 through 16 and verses 45 45 through 53. In 7 through 16, uh, Jesus says, we're going back to Jerusalem. We're going back to Judea, even though, even though his disciples are warning him, don't go back. See, here's what happened. In chapter 10, he said to the Jews in Jerusalem, I am God. And they pick up stones and they begin to try to stone him. He escapes to basically where he was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, which is about, say, 20 miles away from Jerusalem. So he escapes from being stoned. And now he's saying, we're going back. (laughs) And his disciples who are good friends are saying, don't do that. You go back, they're going to stone you. We're, We're going back to die. See, he goes back to Judea even though he knows what he's about to do. They don't know what he's about to do, but he knows what he's about to do. He's about to raise someone from the dead. And there's going to be many people who believe in him. He knows what he's about to do. He knows what this will mean. Not only has he said, I am God, now I'm going to show you that I'm God. You see, he had just escaped from being stoned. Goes back to where they were going to stone him against the warning of his disciples. He knew what he was going to raise Lazarus, which would ultimately sign his death warrant on the cross. Do you get it? He loved them, so he went back. And he loved us to the end, because he knew it meant the cross. Church, for God so loved you and me that he went back. Praise the Lord. For the joy that was set before him, he went back. Jesus went back. He set his face towards Jerusalem, and he knew what was going to happen. But he did that for them, and he did that for you, and he did that for me. You see, because Jesus loves us, we love others. His love for us motivates him to see us, move toward us, and act on our behalf. His love and explicit care motivates us to love and care for others. His love is foundational to our care of others. And church, to be honest with you, this it's this kind of care that makes us distinctively gospel people. Christian care. It's not based on uh, any sort of humanistic or religious kind of care. Humanism basically says you care for your fellow human being because, you know, They're humans, (laughs) right? Uh, And when that doesn't go well, you kind of lose the fuel, right? You kind of go, well, I mean, they just gave me the finger. Can I say that? Sorry about that. Uh, They just said, you know, it didn't go well. So, well, you know, why should I even help these people who don't help me back? We don't do it for humanistic reasons. That's not what motivates us. It, it's religion doesn't motivate us either. It's not about I'm caring for you in order to be justified before God, to be for God to be pleased with me. That's not why we do it. That's religion. So it's not irreligion and it's not religion that motivates us. It's the gospel. It's Jesus and Him crucified who loves us that motivates us to care. And I can say to this person who loves me or doesn't love me, the reason I'm caring for you is because he loved me first and he cared for me first. That's why I care for you. That's why we start here. This is what makes our care distinctively Christian. Our care is based on a relationship with the only one who loved us while we were yet sinners. The one who loved them and us to the end. And church, in the same way as we're thinking about mission 333 and care, his love motivates us to see others, to move towards them, and act on their behalf through our love and explicit care for them. But remember, this care is fueled by the gospel itself for no other reason but that he loves us. You see, his love motivates us his love strengthens us when we feel like we can't care. His love causes others to feel loved and cared for in a way they've never felt loved and cared for because it's not our love, it's his love through us. It's his love that protects us and our identity when things don't go as planned. We're caring for someone and they it doesn't go well. So is our identity based in their love in return or is our identity based in the love of Christ? His love protects us when things don't go as planned. His love is the fuel that drives us to care for others. You see, church, we care in motive and action because Jesus loves us and cares for us. The way we've said it in our church, it's being before doing. So that's number one. He loves us. Why do we care? Because he loves us. He cares for us. He has shown that he loves and cares for us. Number two. Another thing that is motivating Jesus to actively care for them is that he cares about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. Now catch that just for a moment. If you're taking notes this morning, when it says it should say in your map, right? That, what does it say? Help me. Jesus cares about, yeah. There you go. So part of this statement, part of this statement comes directly from a quote that says this. Here's the quote, and I really like this quote. Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering, right? So the reason I heard that quote was because I was at a conference called CrossCon. And at this conference, the speaker was speaking to many 20-somethings, maybe even some 30-somethings, and social justice was a big deal. It still is a big deal, all right? And so he wanted to make very clear okay, that, that whoever he was speaking to doesn't get it lopsided, that it's not just about eternal suffering, it is not just about immediate suffering, it's both. That Christians care about all justice all suffering, but especially eternal suffering. There's a balance there. So we're going to talk about that in just a few moments. But let's look at the passage. Let's look for some support from this passage that Jesus cares about all suffering, especially especially eternal suffering. Verse 33, When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. You see, Jesus wept. (laughs) This too is love, Jesus' love leading to care. The crowds recognize it immediately. And when Jesus weeps at the tomb of Lazarus, they say in verse 36, see how he loved him. And in this, we see the amazingly complex and righteous emotional life of our Lord. On the one hand, he tells the disciples, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there. He's glad that he waited, because he loves them. He's glad that he waited, because he loves them. And then, when he gets there, he weeps. Why? Because he loves them. More than that, he is, the Bible says, deeply moved. Literally, if you look at those words, it means that he was angry and indignant towards suffering. Righteous anger towards suffering. So those words deeply moved means that he deeply cares about the suffering that was going on uh, with his friends. Jesus meets Mary and Martha in their weeping. He sees them weeping, and he is indignant at sin and death and the way that it ravages those he loves. Jesus cares about all suffering. This is so important to remember. Yes, the love of Jesus waits. It even rejoices in waiting. But that doesn't mean he doesn't meet us in our weeping. When we come to him with our confusion and our questions and we say, where were you? Why did you wait so long? Why Why didn't you do something? He doesn't rebuke us. He says, I know. Grief, grief is great. I'm with you. I'm for you. Bring your confusion to me. Yes, I waited but I'm still with you because I love you. See, once again, Jesus cares about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. Jesus' weeping shows that he deeply cares about all suffering. He has righteous anger towards suffering. He is indignant towards suffering. But he causes them to wait, to show them something greater, something of eternal value so now you're probably wondering why are we talking about suffering in a sermon about caring well you may be thinking to yourself well that that really escalated quickly didn't it um, you may be saying to yourself well I thought the act of caring for someone was just helping my elderly neighbors take out the trash or taking food over to someone's house that just got out of the hospital well you're right It's all of that, but it's so much more than that. You see, the act of caring for the needs of others, no matter how large or how small, but not without caring for their eternal needs as well, it's not good. It's not biblical. It's not what Jesus did. You see, often Jesus lived in the tension of caring for the immediate need To communicate or show something about himself, which would meet an eternal need. What do you do? What do I do? Do we we live in that tension as well, or or are we lopsided? Because here's what usually happens. You find some churches, some people, that it's all about eternal suffering, which is important. We talk about this all the time. And let's just be clear what we're talking about. We're talking about God's wrath. We're talking about a literal place called hell. We're talking. This is not. Um, I forget the word. Extinctionism, where someone you just extinguish somebody. No, they live in a literal place called hell. For those who are not in Christ, who have not put their faith in Christ, will live in a literal place called hell forever. That's where they will be. That's eternal suffering. You will be away from your Creator and facing wrath for all eternity. That's eternal suffering. Some churches, and I was raised in a church like raised kind of raised, in a church like that, all about eternal suffering. And they said, to heck with the immediate suffering, to heck with the immediate needs of our community. Okay, then you got some people, it's all about the immediate needs in the community. And there's very little sharing, if any at all, of eternal suffering and eternal needs. Do you get what I'm trying to say? So Jesus cares about all suffering, but especially eternal suffering. It gives, uh, do you see the tension? Jesus is living in that tension in this passage and this quote is very helpful that I heard at CrossCon because this is what's happening in John chapter 11. It's it's both. It's living in the tension of meeting immediate needs, caring for immediate needs, but not at the expense of eternal and then vice versa. Does that make sense? So, Are we lopsided in how we care for people? This summer, Mission 333, please let's not be the church that's all about this at the expense of that or all about that at the expense of this. Let's not be that. The act of caring for someone is to care for the immediate needs of others out of love for Jesus, we just talked about that, and them no matter how large or small. It could be taking out the trash. It could be visiting in the hospital. Whatever. But this goes hand in hand in caring for their eternal needs as well. It goes hand in hand. See, that's the point. Yes, Jesus cared for their immediate need of physical life. He did. He cared for that. He raised Lazarus from the dead. But in meeting this need, he showed them an even greater need. Belief. Belief in the only Son of God who gives eternal life. Church, why do we care? Well, like Jesus, it is to share and show the transforming power of the gospel in caring for both the immediate and eternal needs of others. Why? Because Jesus cares about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. So that's number two. Number three, this leads to what we just talked about, leads to and supports the third motivation that we see in the Scripture. Jesus desires all people to believe. If there's an overarching thing that's going on in John chapter 11, it's that right there, that Jesus desires all people to believe in him. We heard the following last week. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 4 says this God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth He desires all people to be saved Jesus desires all people to believe Well we see this very clearly in John chapter 11 and I I want you to notice something notice the progression and the purpose of what's happening in John chapter 11 Jesus' caring for an immediate need is important, but it leads to glory and caring for an eternal need. Look with me, verse 4. But when Jesus heard, heard it, that Lazarus was ill, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Glory is the first part. So let's add to it. Verses 14 through 15. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. But for your sake, or and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. Verse 25. Jesus said to her, this is Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Martha, do you believe this? Verse 40, Jesus says to her again, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Verse 42, he's praying to the Father, Jesus is. He says, Father, I knew that you always hear me. Listen to Jesus' trust in his Father. I knew. (laughs) I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So if you look prior to that, we're not going to go into that. He says something, and he says that not because he doesn't trust the Father, but because those around him will know, nope, yep, so that they'll believe. Verse 45. So what's the result of all of this? The resurrection of Lazarus, all of that. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen, keyword seen, what he did, believed in him. And then it says right after that, some believe, some didn't. And the religious leaders, verse 48, look at this. (laughs) Caiaphas says, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Right there, you see the motivation of of the religious leaders. But there are others that saw the glory of Christ to the resurrection of Lazarus they saw his glory and then and said yes that's amazing that's who he is and they believed that's what Jesus was going for the entire time yes he loved them yes he cares about suffering but ultimately it's that right there that they may believe Jesus desires all people to believe. See, this deep, radical, often counterintuitive love is what the whole confusing story has been about. The waiting, the riddles, the confusion, the weeping, the raising, all of them are designed to take us deeper so that we know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Not just that he cares for us, not just that he can do all things, Not even just that he can raise the dead, but that he is the resurrection and the life. He doesn't just raise, he is resurrection. He is life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Church, do you believe this? You see, this is where Jesus has been taking Martha all along. Do you believe this? With your brother lying in a tomb, knowing that I could have prevented it, Martha, do you believe this? You see, belief is the ultimate point of caring. Nothing else really matters. In light of eternity. Yes, Jesus and us. We do not like all suffering. We dislike all suffering. But belief is the point. Eternal suffering is the point. The Bible says, when the Son of Man is lifted up and glorified, some people are given the eyes of faith to see how glorious He is. And when this happens, they believe. Jesus says, this illness does not lead to death. You're going to see my glory. I'm going to magnify myself. People are going to see me for who I really am. And guess what? Some are going to believe. Some eyes will be opened. Some of them will be born again. Some of them may not or will not. But that's that's the progression and the purpose. Glory, sight, faith, receiving, believing that yes, Jesus is who he says he is and he is marvelous. If you look at the end of the book of John, John says, I wrote these things that you may believe. So church, in conclusion, how will this happen if we don't pray and Care and share. We Going back to facing the giants, we prepare the field. We don't bring the rain. We can't give sight to blind men, but he can. So what is our role? Our role is to prepare the field. We pray, we care like this, and then we share. That's next week. So church, why do we care? (laughs) Because he cares. Why do we care? Because he cares. He cares for us. And out of that care, we care for the people in our city. But this care is not just warm feelings. It's not just, it's actionable. There is a motive that motivates us to care in actionable ways. It's motive and action. This is why we care. Because Jesus loves us. He hates all suffering, especially eternal suffering. And he desires all people to believe. And that's why we do what we do. That's why we're doing Mission 333. So what I want you to do is I want you to think about the three people that you wrote down um, or that you've been thinking about or praying for. And I want you to, I want to encourage you to be, think about how can I, in a very tangible way, meet an immediate or specific, we'll call it felt need in their life. It it may not even be meeting it, okay? It may just be caring for it. So I'm praying for that person. Now I'm looking for specific ways to meet an immediate or tangible felt need with the goal of, once again, their eternal need in focus. Prayer, care, and share. So what I want us to do right now is I want us to, let's stand together And with your heads bowed and eyes closed, I want, you to be, I want you to pray for those people that are not convinced of the gospel in your life. Right now, just go ahead and pray, if you want to. Whoever those three people are that you've identified in your life, pray for them. And then ask God to show you or provide a way for you to meet a very specific, tangible, felt need in their life that leads to caring for an eternal need that they have. All you can do is prepare the field. So Lord, as we think about these three folks or maybe there's more, or maybe there's less or maybe we don't even have three people in mind yet, Lord, I just pray that you would help us. Help us to identify one, two, three people that are not convinced of the gospel. Help us to pray for them. Put them on our hearts and in our heads and in our path then God, give us the opportunities and the ideas to know how to care for them. Specifically, specific needs, God, would you help us to do that? Would you show us, would you help us to see the needs that are around us and out of your love for us, their desire to, uh, your desire to be save them, for them to believe, God, then would you help us to, you know, pray and then find that specific need to care for and then be able to share the gospel with them. Once again, uh, the foundation is your love for us. And so God, would you help us to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? And would that lead to more prayer, more care, and more sharing, especially with these folks that we have in mind? In Jesus' name, amen.